This is episode 132 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Truck, Scrip, and Creative Compensation. This episode is part of our near daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I've been thinking a lot about the concepts of labor and jobs and compensation and money during the pandemic, or as the as I've been calling it lately, the pandemonium. I mean, it's an interesting problem because at this point we have over 37 million people in the United States who have filed for unemployment. And although there's certainly a huge amount of work to be done, nobody has any money to pay them. So I was thinking about this as kind of a historical problem. What do you do when you have a lot of work that needs to be done and you don't have any money? So I wanted to look back in history, but also think about creative compensation and how we have often dealt with this kind of problem throughout history. And the first thing I was thinking about was barter. And I'll give you an example, as long as you don't tell the IRS, which, you know, was really a beautiful example in my own personal life of how this worked really well. I have a very dear friend who's an extraordinarily talented artist, and I asked her many years ago to take a crack at the logo that I would use for my publishing company, the Whistling Rabbit Press. And Whistling Rabbit comes from a song by Burl Ives, which has a tremendous sentimental meaning for me. At the same time, she had asked my husband if he would help her uh, wire her house for internet and Wi-Fi, which was a truly horrible job involving crawling around up in the attic and in down in very tight, hot spaces and was extremely uncomfortable. And so you have here two examples of work really, that would be very hard to put a monetary value on. And of course, the IRS says, if you're going to barter, you have to report that income on both sides, because of course, they want a piece of the action. And the reality is, it was extremely meaningful to me to get a logo that is, I Uh, I'll suggest that you check it out. It it really is extraordinary and really evocative of that song. And also to try and put a price on the many, many hours uh, during that, those uh, days when my husband was working in her house, problem solving and, you know, being very creative about how to run those wires for maximum efficiency and so forth. I can't even imagine what a regular... 
uh, contractor would have charged her to do that. So you have two examples of labor there that, you know, would be actually kind of difficult to put a monetary value on. And yet after my husband had finished and I asked my dear friend how much I owed her for this really beautiful logo that, that I treasure still today, you know, she said, well, let's just call it even. And I thought, wow, that's really beautiful. We both feel amply compensated for the work that's done and we haven't had to quantify it, which in a way just made it simpler. So barter is an interesting way of of, uh, compensating people. Of course, the law would tell you that it has to be agreed upon up front, how much it's going to be, and then again, the IRS wants a piece of it. But I was thinking, I wonder if in today's world... Could we arrive at some kind of barter situation between people who are now unemployed, they're at home, and yet they still have needs, right? They, they might be toying with the idea of working on something else or working remotely, and yet they might have certain restrictions. They might still have to pay the rent or they can't really start a business unless they have childcare. And of course, everyone needs to eat. The other thing that's, that is uh, noticeable, I think, in today's situation is how much work there is to be done. I mean, you just look around in almost any community, and there, to me, to my mind's eye, there's just a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. So anyway, I was thinking about uh, creative ways in which we might be able to trade labor for some kind of value. I think it's helpful here also to remind ourselves of some of these economic terms. And one of them is just the concept of labor. And so the economists will tell us if you purchase something that someone has produced, in a way you're purchasing the labor that they put into that object. If it's a pie or uh, a piece of art or a chair. Uh, So the idea of labor is somewhat abstract, but probably goes into, in some way, the pricing of that object. The other concept of labor is more abstract, and that is just a thing that you can purchase that in some ways represents what you could get for that amount of labor under certain conditions and at a certain time. And then further, there's a concept of how you measure that labor. And so often we turn to time as the way to measure labor. So an hour of someone's labor or a day of someone's labor. But you can also pay for someone's labor, as we saw in the episode about the garment factories, in terms of uh, the piece that they produce or the amount of time that it takes them to produce something. I was curious to look back in time at ancient civilizations to see how they coped with this kind of exchange uh, back before there were minimum wage laws and income tax laws and so on and so forth. So I looked back at ancient Egypt, and yes, indeed, they used the barter system back then, but they did have a unit of value that they would put on goods or labor. So for example, uh, the monetary unit of ancient Egypt was a deben. 
people knew what the price of things were in Debens, even though there wasn't a Deben coin. So you might say, for example, that 75 liters of wheat cost a Deben, and a pair of sandals also cost a Deben. So people who had a pair of sandals but needed wheat could exchange with people who had the wheat uh, but didn't have sandals. In addition, uh, laborers were also paid in bread and beer, which again makes a lot of sense if you have work that you can offer from your own muscles and elbow grease, but you still need to eat, right? It's also a good reminder to think of what jobs were like back then. And we have an old uh, literary work uh, known as the Satire of the Trades. In this uh, piece of literature, a father is talking to his son about possible jobs. And the father is a scribe, but he's describing all these other terrible jobs to his son in order to encourage him to become a scribe, which in those days was kind of a white-collar job. And so he goes on to describe the life of a carpenter and how hard that is and how a field hand on farms is a really just a life of misery and a weaver is just a, a wretched job. Uh, the arrow maker, also terrible. Uh, the merchant has to travel all the time and, and doesn't have any reassurance that he'll come home and find his family there. And then the washermen, uh, have a very dangerous job where they have to do laundry at the riverbank where there are crocodiles. So uh, talk about uh, needing hazard pay. Uh, the fisherman is also really uh, sketchy because it's risky, and also there are dangers in the water for him too. So all of these jobs are described so that the boy uh, will embrace the life of the scribe. And the man says to the son, uh, it's the greatest job you could ever have. According to the ancient history encyclopedia, these upper-class jobs uh, included things like the bureaucrats, the architects, engineers, and artists, and uh, military leaders, uh, priests, uh, doctors, astrologers, and exorcists. I really am impressed with those last two astrologers and exorcists, uh, it seems like there'd be considerable amount of play acting that could go into that, which of course is a skill, but also might be a little bit easier to acquire than some of these other things uh, that actually would require real knowledge. The encyclopedia says that these jobs required many years of training and apprenticeship and hard work, uh, but that it would not have been considered hard work by those who were in the lower classes. And we have some of this uh, certainly still today with white-collar workers, and I am particularly reminded of the Dire Straits song, Money for Nothing, where the manual labor guys moving refrigerators look at the guys on MTV playing guitar and saying, yeah, you know, money for nothing and chicks for free. The encyclopedia goes on to say that in lower-class jobs, uh, we know a lot about them because there were documentation of their injuries and so forth. Uh, so many of those jobs were certainly very dangerous um, and, uh, you know, compared to today with OSHA and so forth, uh, certainly not having this kind of uh, regulation and uh, safety standards that we would expect today. 
The ancient encyclopedia claims that all jobs that required labor of any type were respected, that the notion of labor was something that was considered very honorable and important, so no jobs were considered more important than others. Mm, I guess I'd kind of believe it if I see it, but okay, that's what they say. They also claim that it's a misconception that it was slaves who built the pyramids, that there's no evidence of that, and that uh, their belief is that those workers were either paid or actually donated their time as a community service, which I can't help but raise an eyebrow about that exactly, how freely that donation was made. But that's what they say, that most of the labor that was done in ancient Egypt was in fact compensated. But there were some slaves that came from different ethnicities. Surprise, surprise. They report that unskilled slaves were used in the mines as domestic help and in other menial capacities. And they also mentioned that uh, those uh, servants would be uh, killed and buried with their master so that they could continue to serve their master after death. Okay, Uh, yeah, maybe you wouldn't want that job. The website ArsTechnica.com reports that uh, they've unearthed a number of quote-unquote pay stubs from ancient Egypt in which they've kept track of how much people were paid, particularly recording the amounts of uh, rations that they've gotten in, in food, but also in particular beer. And there are records of people receiving about four to five liters per day for people who were building the pyramids. And you might think that that could be kind of counterproductive when you're uh, trying to get someone to work productively. But they claim that the beer back then was actually kind of different. Maybe it had less alcohol in it, but it was also a really hearty, starchy brew uh, that could double as a meal. And during Chaucer's time, uh, people believed that wine brought good health, but was certainly attractive at a time when the Black Death was uh, decimating the populations. So interesting how compensation The appeal of compensation can depend on what's happening uh, around you, the context of that compensation. Uh, It appears that though some employers are still using alcohol to pay workers. Uh, This website reports in 2013, Amsterdam started a controversial program to help alcoholics get their lives together by paying them beer to pick up trash. And then, of course, you know, they do point out that tech companies also ply their employees uh, with free booze on Friday afternoons as a perk. Uh, So we know, as they say, that plying employees with uh, alcohol is is an old trick. I want to talk here about truck wages, which were uh, really widespread in Britain during the 18th and 19th century. And although there was effort to by legislators to outlaw them, they actually continued to be pretty common into the 20th century. And truck wages are a way to compensate uh, someone for their labor in terms of something other than conventional money. Uh, so uh, payment in kind, uh, which is sort of a barter system, credit with retailers or some kind of money substitute like a scrip, chits, vouchers, or tokens, kind of a replacement for conventional money. 
that word truck actually still exists in our uh, common usage today of the English language, language where we talk about to have no truck with something, which means to have nothing to do with it, to want to have nothing to do uh, with whatever you're talking about. Now, on one hand, it sounds as though the system could work pretty well, right? I mean, it's all just uh, an alternative to conventional money, and as long as the value is recognized on both sides as being fair, it should work out fine. The trouble is a lot of times these truck wages were used inside what you might call a closed economic system, and so these uh, tokens or chits could only be used with certain vendors, uh, particularly in the case when those suppliers were controlled by the employer, then you have this very controlled uh, closed system in which basically the employer can pay the employee uh, much less than market rates uh, because there's no alternative for that employee to go elsewhere to sell his uh, wages on the free market. Sometimes it's also referred to as the Tommy system, and there an employee would be expected to spend some of their wages at the company store uh, for the good of the shop. And so a Tommy might mean a penny roll or a piece of bread or some unit of food that the workman uh, uh, takes away from the shop uh, in compensation for his labor. And I'll read here a couple comments from the agriculturist and political reformer William Cobbett about the Tommy system in which he says it's not in and of itself bad, but it becomes problematic when there's a virtual monopoly of the company store. So he says, I've often had to observe on the cruel effects of the suppression of markets and fairs and on the subsequent power of extortion possessed by the country shopkeepers and what a thing it is to reflect on that these shopkeepers have the whole of the laboring men of England constantly in their debt, have on an average a mortgage on their wages to the amount of five or six weeks and make them pay any price that they choose to extort. This kind of system actually existed also in the United States, a truck system, when money was really scarce. And so uh, there were very few banknotes, and then, of course, coinage uh, was very difficult to come by. And so the uh, employers and laborers would engage in a kind of truck system, which has been uh, popularized in the song 16 Tons, which you may uh, remember where the narrator uh, says to St. Peter that he can't go to heaven uh, because he owes his soul to the company store. Which brings us to company scrip, S-C-R-I-P. And this was used particularly in the United States in lumber companies and in coal companies, again, where legal tender was hard to come by, but the employers wanted to compensate their employees in some way. And so often, you know, there was what you might call a, a company town, a community that has grown up around one employer, and so there would only be one store. And since there was no money in the whole system, the companies would issue company script to their employees, and then they had no choice except to spend that script at the company store. And as we've just said, who knows what the prices might be when it's not a free market in our traditional sense. 
And so the employer could place large markups on the goods and make the workers even more dependent on the company and then enforce their quote-unquote loyalty or the fact that they had no place else to go. And the government was sometimes uh, complicit in this. I'm sure you're shocked to hear. So in the 19th century, uh, Wisconsin passed some laws that specifically exempted forest products and lumber companies from having to pay their employees in cash. And instead, they allowed them to pay in this company script, and those were redeemable at the company store. Uh, Sometimes, in fact, employers were allowed to write contracts that obligated the employees to patronize the company store, thus certainly restricting uh, their ability to access a free market. And then if you wanted to turn your script into cash, that often came with a hefty discount or fee. Now, sometimes you could uh, turn this script into lumber, which in the developing areas that might have been quite appealing to workers as they were looking to build homes in the area. And in case you think that uh, could never happen in our modern world, we actually have examples of this as recently as 2019. Uh, The Mexican Supreme Court of Justice ruled that Walmart uh, must cease paying its employees in part with vouchers that were redeemable, guess what, only at Walmart stores. And in 2019, the Washington Post published an article about Amazon's system of, quote, gamification, which rewards employees who complete high numbers of orders with swag bucks or the ways in which they could play video games, which then could be used to buy Amazon-themed merchandise. Right. Now, you might be getting your creative juices flowing, as I was, about ways in which you could uh, pay people for their labor. And in the United States, we really only have a few options. You can pay them actually directly in cash, but not quote-unquote under the table, meaning if you pay them in cash, you still have to file all the payroll taxes, and you have to report that payment, and then they have to report it as income to the IRS. So lots of rules around that where government, and surprise, surprise, wants to get involved in that. You can pay them with a paycheck. You can pay them through direct deposit, although there are certain limitations about that. Uh, For example, an employee cannot be required to pay in some way in order to get paid. So there can't be any kind of fee associated with getting direct deposit. And in my own experience, I do have to say that direct deposit often caused the most controversy of any kind of payment because often the uh, worker did not want their partner to see the money coming into the bank account. And so often they preferred to have a manual check that they could quote-unquote rat hole. And I actually had uh, several employees explain this to me, that there was rat hole money. Uh, So if they were paid a bonus, for example, or certain payments that were only given out at the end of the year, uh, they wanted those not to go through the direct deposit system because then their wife would see that money, but they wanted to get that check directly uh, so that they could turn it into cash and then rattle that money. So always very eye-opening to work with people uh, about issues around money. You can also pay employees with payroll cards, which are kind of like debit cards. But again, there can't be any kind of fee associated with them. 
We'll talk a lot more about minimum wage in future episodes. It's really a topic that I want to dig into fairly soon. But we know that there are minimum wages that are set by the states, and then also there's a minimum wage that's set by federal law. And so, in theory, employers have to, they have to guarantee minimum wage payments to their employees. But as we know from the Garment Factories episode, the only way that employees can hold their employers accountable is to bring a complaint if they feel as though they're not being paid minimum wage. There are a lot of issues that go into bringing a complaint. Do the authorities have the resources to pursue each of those? And um, if you're an undocumented worker, are you really going to be willing to stick your neck out like that? So sometimes these issues are much more complicated than they appear on the surface. And so people get away with stuff, right? And sometimes it really does come down to basically an honor system. Now, in our modern world, there are lots of other ways in which you are paid in addition to your salary. So fringe benefits, your health care, insurance premiums, and then all kinds of perks, you know, that you might get. Uh, Free daycare, your company car, your cell phone, gym memberships, uh, goes on and on. All these creative ways that employers have found to compensate their employees, including, you know, things that I think are going to be more relevant today, like uh, a flexible schedule, for example. Bonuses, of course, we've, those have been around for a long time, uh, but even professional development training programs and the companies I worked for, we often used to pay a portion of someone's tuition, which I really loved if they wanted to go back to school to obtain their degree. Also, things like the 401k, company match, you know, the list kind of goes on and on. Those are kind of the traditional ones that we think of, but I also ran across some others that are kind of outside of my world, but I thought were sort of interesting. Of course, moving expenses. Historically, we've talked about moving expenses when you're obliged to move across the country for your job, Uh, but it could be that Uh, In today's world, it might be that you're not actually changing jobs, but you are allowed to move to a less expensive area of the country and still work remotely. Uh, So that might be something interesting that could come out of the uh, pandemic. Uh, Subsidized housing, of course, in, in certain, particularly when you first take a job, I've often had my housing paid for for a certain period of time until I could secure housing. Uh, Things like child care or elder care. Again, some of those are more well-known, but elder care is kind of uh, an interesting possibility. Subsidized utilities, I personally haven't experienced that, but I can imagine situations in which that might be uh, something useful to offer to employees. And then things like tickets to events, magazine subscriptions, and then even boots and clothing, right? That those might be subsidized or just uh, purchased for you. Certainly the police department that I worked with, uh, they got things purchased for them, their guns and uh, protective gear, for example. Uh, You might have laundry service. I know when I was put up in a hotel for long periods of time, all kinds of things like that were paid for for me. Uh, Company parties, in a way, I guess are a kind of compensation. Of course, all the food now that's provided by tech companies. Interesting, there's also some other things like use of farm trucks or, and machinery. 
And I'm thinking of a situation that exists in one of the members of my family where we have a worker on a piece of property, and indeed he uses the equipment that are owned by the family but that he's allowed to have use of, and then that's quite a significant benefit for him. And then we've talked about things like food and meals, but also farm produce. If you're working for an employer who produces food, cell phones and pagers, And then, of course, also similar to using farm equipment, the use of farm pastures and gardens. And again, in the situation with my family, also that individual is allowed to use the land to grow his or her own food. And again, that's considered quite a significant benefit. And moving into the more, uh, even more creative spectrum, I ran across an article for entrepreneurs about how they can pay their employees without using cash. And it's interesting to think that this problem goes all the way back to coal mines and lumber companies, and it still exists today for startups who are cash-strapped, but they're trying to bring in talent and how... Uh, They can find ways to pay them uh, without having to pay competitive market wages. Uh, So one of the suggestions, this comes from Harvard Business Review, is that you pay uh, your new talent for performance instead of on a salary basis. So you try to uh, just pay them for what they accomplish. And of course, that reduces your risk that you bring somebody on, they do nothing, and you've spent a whole bunch of money. And of course, potentially could incentivize them to make even higher than market wages if they're successful at what they're uh, supposed to do. Another suggestion here was to cover expenses before taxes. This actually looks slightly dubious to me. Uh, So they suggest parking, metro passes, gym memberships, hardware, snacks, lunch, and uh, HBR says this can really add up over the course of the year. And one way that you could do that without having to pay taxes on it is to go through a payroll provider uh, or a professional employer organization. So, okay, maybe it's legal, but it looks a little bit like a loophole to me where normally those things often, depending on the details, uh, would be considered uh, taxable income for the employee and something that the employer should report to the IRS. Another thing HBR suggests is that you give a signing bonus or a quarterly retention bonus, and each either of those could be wiped out if the employee leaves the company too soon. So again, a little bit scary from a liability standpoint. You pay somebody, uh, presumably you're also paying them a salary that meets minimum wage, uh, but When you give money to somebody and then try and get it back, sometimes that can be a little troublesome and uh, could definitely lead to some hard feelings on both sides. They also suggest uh, invest in training and professional development that we did just talk about. And that actually could be very appealing to someone, especially if they're working reduced hours at the startup, uh, work for the startup uh, part-time, but also you get to go to school to get additional accreditation or a degree. I can definitely imagine that being a win-win for both sides. And then, of course, things like stock options and profit sharing. We've all looked at those uh, ad nauseum. And then uh, there's also a suggestion here about promote balance and flexibility. And so uh, adopting non-cash incentives like uh, generous vacation leave policies, flex time, remote days, 
half-day Fridays or sabbaticals. And I'm reminded of uh, episodes that we did with Alex Pang, one of which was about the four-day work week and the really tremendous success that many companies have had with moving to a four-day work week in terms of employee retention and loyalty. So I love that uh, suggestion. And then here's an interesting one, and I'm going to close with this one because it uh, kind of amuses me and raises some questions. And that is that you might reward your uh, new employee with a job title. And so instead of paying them what you normally would have to pay, instead you pay them less, but you give them this giant job title. And I, I definitely have some concerns about this. I personally have observed people who were given a job title that was not merited by their experience or uh, education or background. And it did do a lot of damage because even if you're told, you know, this is kind of a job title in advance of where you are, it's really hard for us, I think, as humans and ambitious people to acknowledge that that's the case. And if you're given a job title that you don't yet deserve, it can cause problems for you in terms of imposter syndrome or potentially attempting to move to a new job where the new employer doesn't share that attitude. And so they're not willing to match your job title. And now it looks as though you've gotten a demotion and now your resume is just a little bit wrecked. And HBR cautions us that uh, it's only okay to do this if you're not messing with your organizational structure. Well, really, how could it not? Or breeding jealousy among other employees. And again, how could it not? I mean, people are well aware of people's titles. So I definitely would be very cautious about that. But there might be times when it would be appropriate to do that to give kind of an aspirational job title. I would worry about exchanging a job title for actual monetary compensation. Again, I think uh, there's a little bit of uh, dishonesty going into that. So with that caveat, uh, you can keep that in mind. I'd love to hear what uh, ideas other people have for creative compensation, particularly during the pandemic and certainly the many months that will be in front of us as we struggle through really severe unemployment rates. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you. <laughs>